0: Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. There's an interesting documentary on Netflix, well, there's a number, but the one I'm thinking about, I think it's called The Last Blockbuster, and it talks about blockbuster video, and the very last one, which is in a small town in Oregon. It plays, it's interesting that it's on Netflix, because Netflix maybe was part of killing blockbuster. When I was a kid, you spent your Friday night or your Saturday night when I was a young adult, going to the video store and standing in front of a wall and selecting a video and you hope they had it in and all that kind of stuff, and you had late fees and everything else. And now there are no more Blockbusters. Uh, The Bible never said that the gates of hell would not prevail against Blockbuster, but apparently the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But at times it can seem like we're waiting for the last uh, Blockbuster to close. The church, in many people's minds, is in decline. You may have participated in church... Um, quite exhaustively in your past, and now maybe don't go to church at all. What is the church? Who is the church? Does the church have any role in society right now? Uh, What do pastors think about that? What do others think about that? Here at Rector's Cupboard, we were really pleased to be invited to enter into conversation with a friend of ours, David Goa, who is an author and museum curator, um, writer on all kinds of different topics of faith and culture, Uh, He's the founder of the Ronning Center for Religion and Public Life, and uh, he's a bit of an Orthodox theologian as well. And so he said, why don't we talk about the church, who the church is, what the church is, and what people have to say. So this series is what has so far come out as a result of that uh, invitation. We speak with a number of people who care about the church and are willing to ask some of those honest questions about where the church is at and what the future looks like for the church in the days ahead. We've got uh, six episodes, I think, seven episodes, and, uh, and we'll be releasing those uh, every couple of days. And so if this is the first time you're listening, if you're listening as they're released, that will be the cadence. We hope you enjoy the conversation. The Church in Between Times, episode seven. We speak with David Goa about the church this conversation offers some hopeful considerations about what the church is, should be, and might hope to be. There are some positive, life-giving ways in which to think about the place of the church in the world. And David walks us through some of these. Well, we're very pleased to uh, be engaging in this conversation with a number of clergy Um, with friends along the way in terms of what is church, what is Ecclesia, as David has been uh, saying to us, who is she? Um, How are we formed in terms of being told and shown what the church is? And then for those of us who have been clergy or are clergy, leaders in churches, um, what does that mean, our, our sense of call, to the church our responsibility and then at this particular moment in history uh, we had this in conversation with a number of the clergy is this a point of crisis in the church Uh, and uh, did that crisis come before covid or is the crisis you know exacerbated by by the pandemic um is there a vocational crisis in the church what is the role of clergy pastors ministers and so so we wanted to take this time to hear a little bit more from David which in the conversations we have heard from David but some of this kind of crystallized um, in terms of what the church is so I guess my first question David to you would be from hearing from clergy including some we've spoken with over the last couple of days in, in these numbers of conversations um, but then your own sense of, uh, of uh, you know, people you've spoken with. What would be some of the things you would add to some of the questions or bring out of some of the answers the way that these clergy have answered what is the church to you? How have you reflected upon some of their answers?
1: What's striking to me is... How among such good people there is so little of the church's thinking about herself that is current, that is present. That is the there is a long tradition of ecclesiology of the church thinking about the church. And what's striking is, and it's really across the board, Mm. how little of that has been pulled forward. So it's curious as to why that is, but we're not involved in diagnosis here. But that that is striking. But let me begin someplace else. Um, There was a journalist that went to Mount Athos, the mountain of monasteries. And I can't remember who he was talking to. I think it was at the Evaron Monastery. And I think he was talking to, um, maybe it was St. Silouan, uh, the Athenite. So this occurred, you know, like 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And they had visited the great library there. And there had been some conversation about what was in that library. And obviously, it's all the writings of the church fathers and spiritual mothers and what have you. Very particular kind of library. And um, the journalist said to him, um, Well, what are you writing these days? And uh, the monk uh, looked at him and said, Oh, we're not writing anything these days why wouldn't you be writing something these days? Well, there's no need to write anything these days. It's all here. The tradition is full. Really? Yeah, of course. You need to learn the tradition. You don't need to write new stuff. Mind you, if, for example, this all burned down...
2: (laughs) (laughs) We'd have to start again. Then
1: we would write. We would write again and we would write what's here.
0: You he would write the same thing over.
1: Well, you wouldn't copy it, but what he's saying is mm. that it's the vitality done. of the ho- of the holy tradition mm-hmm. is vital and it is alive. And because of that, and the task is to drink from the fountain. And what he's <laughs> suggesting is that in this kind of extreme way is that the preoccupation that we have you know all of us I think have certainly I have it is to you know put your mark on things and to to uh to make the new case to innovate to make a contribution I mean we have so many ways of thinking about it but this is a different drummer you know this is saying well The great and holy tradition is unbelievably rich. And that the first task isn't to do something. It's to learn something. It's to listen. It's to digest. So, And as, as you know, we live in a world where so much of our attention is given to that which is new, that which is new, that which is seen as fruitful and productive and what have you. So in a way, the, and that, that sort of habit of mind, I think that habit of mind, which is deeply rooted in our form of modernity, because our form of modernity looks towards the future mm-hmm. and it pretends the past doesn't even exist. There's certainly tradition doesn't exist. That habit of mind also grows very much out of the Protestant principle. Now, I love the Protestant church. Don't get me wrong. And the Protestant principle was a necessity. mm mm-hmm. Given what had happened in the Roman Catholic Church. I also have love and affection for the Roman Catholic Church. So you know, it's odd for me. I mean, I, I, I have a deep love for all of the churches. Um at the monastery on Saturday I got into or on Monday or no, Sunday, I got into a little little conversation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I had a word tussle in my head. <laughs>
1: which, yeah. Oh, yeah, I had some words in my head. <laughs> <laughs> where, uh, I don't recall, oh yes, yeah, somebody had asked me about my current teaching, and I mentioned I was teaching at Newman Theological College, which is Roman Catholic. Their eyes got full, and, and they leaned forward, and they said, well, how do you teach there? Do you give them orthodoxy? Uh, I said, well, you know, orthodoxy belongs to them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I said, (laughs) said, well, orthodoxy isn't denominational. Orthodoxy is not something that belongs to the Orthodox Church. I love it when the Orthodox Church claims Orthodox theology. But, you know, it's kind of (laughs) rare. Yeah. The Orthodox tradition belongs to all Christians and it belongs to all kinds of people who aren't Christian because it's not about some... It's it's about the human nature and the human experience. It is an illumination of what it means to be a human being. So we had this back and forth because... There is, of course, in many Orthodox people, and for understandable historical reasons, fear Mm -hmm. about Roman Catholicism, because after all, the, the Jesuits and a number of other religious orders, they went into Orthodox countries and did their best to convert them. Because Orthodoxy was seen by much of the Roman Catholic Church, as a kind of paganism with a little Christian patina on it. Mm. Mm. I mean, if you look at the Second Crusade in, yeah. in Constantinople, it, it uh, raped and pillaged the city, and it justified doing that because they weren't Latins. So what that highlights, though, is, is an issue that, that has, you know, plagues all churches and so many Christians which is really what what is the church what is it is it is it some institutional structure is it does it have an order uh, does it have a hierarchy uh, what what is it and Many theologies, including Protestant theologies, try to deal with this in a variety of ways. They speak about the visible church and the invisible church and things of that nature. So I want to go back a little bit farther than that. In the Jewish world and in the Hebrew Bible, we, we have the ground for this being laid with the notion of the presence, the way it's often translated, is the presence of the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and the fullness of the mm-hmm. kingdom of God. Uh, I prefer to say the presence of the commonwealth of God and the fullness of the commonwealth of God. In the Jewish understanding, creation never left God. The fall, part of the Torah, part of the revelation in the Torah, does not lead to the doctrine of original sin. Original sin, or the fall, is not necessarily seen as disobedience, that's not the, you get that on the surface of the text, but that's not what the text is really about. That's not what the text mm-hmm. is trying to reveal to you. So in the, and in the Jewish tradition, uh, creation, the human being, the body, the sexual life are all Holy. Now you may not treat them hmm. in a proper way, but in and of themselves in their in their very being, they are manifestations of the sacred so in the the orthodox tradition as you as you know, this part of the church, which again, I want to emphasize, is the common heritage of all mm-hmm.
0: Christians it is.
1: In the patristic tradition, the fall, that extraordinary narrative, I love that narrative, in Genesis 3, is a revelation, not about something that happened to Adam and Eve. It is that too, fine with me, that you can locate where they lived and what their last names were. But it is first and foremost an unveiling of how the human mind works and how the human heart works. It is an unveiling of that very fundamental human struggle, which is self-forgetfulness, which is alienation. So when we read that our mother Eve, our father Adam when we read the encounter with the liar, with the deceiver, and the liar and the deceiver tempts them, that temptation to become like God and know good and evil, that temptation is clearly not the problem. Temptations are fine. What is it that goes into making you vulnerable to a temptation? Why would you be vulnerable to it? Well, in this case, they're vulnerable to the temptation because they have forgotten that they already are Mm -hmm. the image and likeness of God. They think they need something. But they need nothing. They are whole. This is a classic Jewish teaching. We are all made whole. We are complete. That doesn't mean finished, it just right. means we are complete in our potentiality, as is all creation. So against that kind of narrative, the Eastern Christian tradition speaks about the the kingdom, the commonwealth of God, and it speaks about, the, obviously, about the significance of Jesus Christ in all of that. But a, a central part of the teaching is really its, its kind of incarnational eschatology, mm-hmm. that um, We have many words for it. We talk about how since the incarnation, since God became human so that human beings could be restored to the divine image, we live in the eighth day of creation.
2: Hmm.
1: We live in the eighth day of creation. We may not know it, but we live in it. Everything is fulfilled, whether you see it or not. Why the eighth day of creation? Well, the eighth day of creation is is the Christian way, the early Christian way of saying, creation is whole, including rest.
0: Mm.
1: Including rest, including Sabbath. But the habit has been to think that was... It or that was done, but creation is not. Creation is the energy of God, it is not God's being. We're not Hindu. Hmm. Creation is the energy of God, and all creation is held together by grace. That is the energy of God. So, the, the the human being, God, of course, does not have being. We use the term the being of God because we don't have any other language mm-hmm. for it. But God is not a being. God is. Is. You know, we, we hear that when Moses goes behind the mountain and... <laughs> says to Adonai, I'm supposed to go to your people and tell them who who, who you are, that you, you feel their pain? You know my people. They're a bunch of Jews. You know them. They'll say, who's his mother? Who's his mother? And the voice comes, none of your business. I am. I am. That's a, That's an amazing shift in ancient mythologies in the way in which the ancients tried to put together the picture of the world and the understanding of the divine because it it completely breaks the habit of propitiation. It breaks the notion that you can find out who God is You can find God's name, and you can then go to God and you can manipulate God. Right. Hmm. You can know Him and you can manipulate Him. Those two go hand in hand in the habits of minds of human beings. And much of that has seeped, of course, into the Christian church as well. I
0: was just thinking that.
1: So, in a sense, God is always unknowable, God is beyond our reach and closer to us than our breath. And so the, the patristics always speak about how all we know of God, we know in the rabbi from Nazareth. And that's all we need to know. Hmm. And that's why the Eastern Christian Church, like the Jews, has no theology of God. Unlike the Latin West, which fill libraries full of a theology <laughs> of God and made up lots of things about God, like all of his qualities and what have you. This does not happen in the East, so why? What does that mean? Well, it is really also a recovery of that word to know in Hebrew. It's saying that the only knowledge there really is, is in the relationship Mm -hmm. of love. Only where there is love. That's the only way you can know anything. Without love, you can't know anything. You can't so know apart. You can't know apart. There's no knowing of bits. There's no bits of knowing. You only know in communion. Hmm. Because we are made for communion. That's what the creation story is about. And God made man, male and female, created them in his image and likeness. And God said, Ah. It is good. And so, the kind of incarnational eschatology that is sort of at the heart of the Orthodox way of viewing the world and and, and central to the understanding of what the Church is, is, is one which is saying the Eternal is not located... At the end of time.
0: Mm.
1: Time is in the eternal. We are living in the kingdom. This is it, my friend. What you see is what you get. But the way you live it can vary enormously. You can live it in and out of communion. You can live it in and out of your own passions, your own suffering. So the tradition is one which is focused on these passions and this suffering, how that comes to be. That's why the fall story is so important. Mm. How does death enter life? You know, in the, in the Genesis narrative, we have these texts which are all about how something comes to be, and God created and God separated. But by Genesis 3, because God never created death,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we have what we would call from a history of religion's perspective, we have the myth, that is the origin mm. story about how death comes to be. Death is estrangement. Death is stepping out of communion. That's what death is. It's a spiritual condition. It's not finitude because we are finite. The early church fathers say even if the fall hadn't occurred, human beings would still die because we're creatures. Only God is eternal. Only God is eternal. But to the degree that you are one with God, to the degree Mm -hmm. that you are in union with God, to that degree you share in the eternal. Hmm. But everything else is a fantasy. So the ecclesia. Mm -hmm. I've been spending lots of time with Maximus, the confessor, who was a monk, and I think... I think it's fair to say, the most um, philosophically sophisticated of the, the great church fathers and spiritual mothers in the church. He lived a long life, and he was finally martyred by bishops, killed by bishops. That's what bishops have a habit of doing. <laughs> Got to be careful with them. So, um, but Maximus the Confessor speaks about about the the Church as as a kind of layered encounter. The cosmos itself is ecclesia. That is, the cosmos is a gathered order. The stars, the planets, the Pleiades. The cosmos itself is held together by God's grace. The cosmos itself is praising God. The cosmos is a hymn of praise. So the Ecclesia is all that is. Because all that is, is because of presence. The, the, the sort of next layer, I suppose we come to that which is human, which is our particular preoccupations. <laughs> So, for some odd reason, yeah, so all human beings in their life, whenever they have been and i'm I'm careful about how I want to put this whenever in their life they have been in the I was going to say stance, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's quite right. Whenever they have been receptive to communion, whenever they have been open to wonder, whenever they have had regard for the beauty of it all, whenever they have been in the presence of mercy and compassion. Mm-hmm that is ecclesia that is the gathering in communion that is a moment an unfolding of communion
0: there's there's an interesting just kind of devotionally prayerfully something that comes up in my mind there having been a pastor in an evangelical church and that there particularly even in the cosmos as ecclesia but this one here then, that place of receptivity, it seems to be saying that there is no Ecclesia without the other.
1: Of course there's no Ecclesia without the other. And you but, as a good Bartian know this. Yes, and, I, and, and the my the ultimate role God.
0: And, and my role isn't to pull the other into my...
1: Yeah, yeah. the The spiritual discipline and we'll come to this when we talk about worship, the spiritual discipline is to increase your capacity to hear that you are being addressed. You are being addressed. It's not us that address God. God addresses us. And God's creation addresses us. It rises up and greets us. And the only matter is whether or not we see that, open to that,
2: mm-hmm.
1: welcome it, or whether we just walk by on the other side. Hmm. So, central to this, obviously, uh, the central issue is that the ecclesia is communion. Communion. And it is communion with the other. Unity cannot occur without the other. It's central. And, you know, it's so odd because most Christian theologies know this when they talk about God.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: (laughs) Orthodoxy, I think, has a has a bit of a grip on part of this because we don't talk about God. You know, we don't fantasize the deity, omniscience, omnipresence, yeah. <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. We, we, um, and also because the church is essentially liturgical, that is, it is about a practice. It's about a discipline. So in that sense, it's closer to learning to play the violin or run a marathon than it is to being a Baptist. I think, I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure what it means to be a Baptist. (laughs) But that is, it's a discipline where all of your life is ordered in a particular way for a purpose. The purpose is to become who you are not to become something new, not to become like Christ, except that when we say to become like Christ, what we really mean, I think, is to become who we are, because we were made in the image of God.
2: Yeah, yeah, and we've touched on that a little bit in in previous conversations. I don't know, recorded or or not, some of those lines are a little blurry for me, but uh, you had mentioned that um, well, there's almost like this, this recapitulation that we go, we see who we are in Christ or we, we see the, the identification of humanity in Christ because Christ, incarnational Christ, is the ultimate human. The ultimate example of showing us how we were created to be. And there, there is...
1: The fullest expression of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. You are the ultimate human. <laughs> for you and for God, you know. Yeah. In that sense, every human being has an ultimacy mm-hmm. which is absolutely unique.
2: Well, and I, and I don't think that that this sort of understanding would would be in any sort of denial about the the kind of well, it would almost be pointing towards that that to be human is not to be sinful. Like that, that is the anti-humanity because it is when we are behaving in in ways that are as you said like missing the mark that are that are out of step with relationship with God and with with creation so sin isn't a a human condition per se I I think I'm I'm hearing this and what you're saying it's it's the opposite of what it really means to be human
1: So sin in that sense is, is, is separation, is to step out of mm-hmm. communion any time that occurs. It's interesting. There's a part of me which, which, wants, to, which wants to suggest that, uh, that the wonderful thing about the Christian revelation, the most beautiful thing about it, is that it has humanized sin. It has mm. come to, s- to speak to us about how, and I see this in Jesus of Nazareth, to say, yes, of course, you were not made for sin. Mm-hmm. You were made for communion. You're not made for alienation. But you know, sinning, missing the mark, missing that... There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I hear what okay. you're saying. Yeah. That's okay. In fact, not only is it okay, it's a revelation. It's a revelation. It's telling you something about your own deeper inner condition that you were not conscious of. It's trying to raise that up and bring that into consciousness so it too can be healed.
2: Well, I love how you speak of, of salvation, in in the language of of healing, rather than quote unquote saving, um, that and, and I think it speaks back to to how how you've been talking about the being created in the image of God that we are created in the image of the divine, um, and so the salvation that happens is 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 a healing and a, a restoration of, of the damage that has been caused. Right. And it's, bu- it's beautiful. Image.
1: The tarnished image. Mm-hmm. It's clearing the tarnished image.
2: It, one of the things that s-
0: strikes me in that, from listening to our friends that we've had conversations with and in my own time working in, again in evangelical churches, it's simplistic to put it this way, but there is, there is a sense that we start with Deficiency.
2: Oftentimes, you know like
0: you? advertising or marketing or mm-hmm. we have to something must be missing in in everybody's life, and so here we are the church, and we can identify what is missing and then give them a program for how to get that back when when you ask you know you start this this reflection with the sense of how much is the church reflecting upon the church and we ask people clergy. You know, what is the church? There's, there's often, and I would probably do this too, that, hmm, you know, let me think about that now. Is it, and, and what comes to mind for me there is, in various traditions, so I can only speak from mine, that, you know, if people were honest, one of the go-to responses to that would be, well, well I know we're the church.
2: I have to determine whether. I don't know if you are, but exactly, I am. Exactly. But
0: I don't think that anything outside of us is the church. But I've yeah. read a few books, and maybe they're the church too, but not the next layer or the next layer. What you're presenting to us is, is different than that from Maximus the Confessor. Um, that it's not from a place of deficiency, first of all, to start with. There's something yeah. else going on.
1: This is the difference between, between Christian anthropology and Freud. Hmm. You know, Freud and psychotherapy. You know, Freud is marvelous in my view. He's a wonderful amateur. And he gives us a language for the spiritual life. But what's its root? What's its anthropology? Well, its anthropology is that human beings, because of the id, Mm -hmm. the ego, and the superego, are essentially a bundle of neurosis. And that neurosis is irresolvable. But I can teach you how to learn to live with it. And, and the Christian tradition, certainly the Christian East, I mean, some Christian theologies are exactly like that. In fact, I think Freud's better than them, but <laughs> it's, it's very much <laughs> like that. Be more useful, maybe. Maybe more useful. <laughs> yeah. oh. But the, the Christian East, in its teaching, and again, this belongs to all of us, going right back to the apostolic period, right back to the rabbi from Nazareth. You know, he never addressed anybody as if they were deficient. Yes. He heard their sense of deficientness, yeah. and he healed it. He blessed them. He called them by name. Hmm. And so the point of departure for the thinking in Maximus and many of the others. And of course, this is at the very heart of the Christian revelation. What in the world do we mean when we say that Jesus of Nazareth is fully human and fully divine? Both. And all the heresies are on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. They're on one side or the other. And the church, over time, addresses those heresies you know, I like those heresies. I think we should do a set of banquets around each of those heresies <laughs> sometime and talk about them. But, but each of those heresies has light, hmm. has an insight, but it's imbalanced and it's not holding together what needs to be held together. And why does it need to be held together? Not because of Jesus of Nazareth. The Trinity is fine. It needs to be held together because that's us. It's about who we are. How does the human and the divine image, how does that, how is that in us? So the tragedy of bad theology hmm. is ruinous lives, is misunderstanding who you are. It, it, it's not about God the misunderstanding of who God is, idolatries, the tragedy of that isn't about God. It's about us. It's mm. because the way in which you see God is an act of transference. Freud understood that perfectly. Right. It? It's, yeah. it reveals how you think of yourself. So coming back to this matter of sin, you know, in the gospel, Jesus said, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and I know I've mentioned this before. To me, that's the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. That's our license for liberty. That is saying to us, yes, of course, we are human. In fact, I'm inclined to think, this may be going a little too far, I'm inclined to think that from from the position, this patristic position, the word sin... I mean, it has multiple layers, obviously. But one of its most profound layer is as a, another word for experience. Every time we experience something, we also turn from other things. We turn toward, and when we turn toward, we may miss something. Um... One of my daughters, who I love more than all the world, has a real habit of uh, ne- not committing herself to coming for supper on a particular day. And I realize the reason is she's looking, for, she's looking to see where the best deal yeah, is. Yeah, who's we got know. the best offer? So, um, but human experience in its very nature is choice. We have the freedom... To say no. We have the freedom to say no. The human will can say no. That's what our freedom is. It's to say no. It's not really to say yes, because that's who we are. We're made that way. But we can turn away from that. So, and the turning away from it is, of course falling out of communion right. but all experience is like that i mean all experience has that potential in it so what jesus is saying there and this is why i'm suggesting to you that another way and i may appreciate what you what you said here but another way mm-hmm. of thinking about sin is that it is it is really part and parcel of our finitude and of of our walk in the world because sin is not is not first and foremost an immoral act. Well, it is it is it is choice through which we come to understand, through which we take another step.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that that's a much more nuanced concept of sin than than I've generally been presented with. I mean. Um, I, I've i come to, to believe that, uh, frankly, the, the concept of sin that I was handed uh, through most of my formational years um, was was incorrect and unhelpful, and in many ways ended up turning God into a subject of sin, being subject to sin, as if some way sin was more powerful than God. And my choices ended up then being more powerful than God. Um, and, and I I think in in many ways that proved to be kind of I think at best unhelpful um, and and ended up producing a lot of fear because I was always afraid of what if i didn't properly repent and somehow mm-hmm. fix this sin and then i died and then god was like well sorry like you didn't do all these things and or you didn't do it in the right order at the right time and it also gave way too much leniency to to how i chose to to behave and be in relationship with other people because there was plenty of ways that i could be terrible to other people and not be quote unquote like sinful in in the my traditional sense. And I feel like that that gives me far too much license to to dehumanize people and to not seek to be in communion properly with people. Um, and so I go I, I feel like hmm. a concept of, of sin that doesn't make me afraid that like, I, I, I very honestly and truly believe that the God is more powerful than sin. Um, and, and that...
1: But God isn't more powerful than your will. Hmm. So I don't think you're going to get out of it that way. I mean, I appreciate what you're, sa- what you're saying and how you diagnose that, and I think that's really good. Mm-hmm. But we have to be a little bit careful because God is the God of love. Mm-hmm. And God poured himself into God gave up his power. Hmm. That's part of what the Incarnation mm. means. God surrendered His power and said, "Here, I'm going to show you who you are, because I don't want I don't want a pagan relationship with you. I want a loving relationship with you, and there is no love where there is power and force. Mm-hmm. That's usually called rape. Yeah. So God is not the God of power and might, as we sing sometimes <laughs> or say in the liturgy as well. The power of God, we see that manifest most profoundly on the cross. Mm-hmm. We see the power of God manifest most profoundly in the virgin's womb, in the nativity of our Lord, we see it manifest most profoundly where there clearly is no power, as we normally understand it, no force. Mm-hmm. So, um, this, is, this is what the Christian revelation, it seems to me, is in a way turning how the relationship to God has been typically understood by human beings, it turns it upside down. Mm. And, and that's because it's it's an insight into what how grace imbues all of creation. It's an insight into how the atoms are held together. It is mm. saying to us that our being is not something, it is in communion. That's where we are. We exist in communion. And that communion is not about something that is beyond time or something that is at the end of right. time, it's something that's already occurred. Right. It has occurred and we have seen it. You know, as the Gospel of John begins, we, we have seen it. it. Beheld its, its glory. Beheld its glory. And and that is given to us. That is given to us. So this sense that anywhere there is communion you have ecclesia. You have the gathering. And then we come to, just in Maximus's yeah. treatment, then we come to the revelation that we treasure. We don't know about everybody else's revelation. You know, I've studied more of them than probably most yeah. people have. <laughs> but I have no illusions about my grasp. Right. You know, my friend Sushil Kalya, the Hindu priest, has a beautiful grasp. I've been spending time with him lately and talking with him and I mean just how little I understand that grasp but with the the biblical revelation this is our particular gift of story and revelation and so drinking at that fountain you know you can only swim in one ocean in a lifetime so you can dabble in a few others but to really learn to swim in when they're all way too big for us. And certainly the Christian and Jewish revelation is way too big for us. But if you want some chance of getting some insight, you're going to have to devote right. a fair bit of time to that one <laughs> to understand how it hangs together and what its, what its uh, configuration is. So the biblical narrative, the, this is our, these are our liturgical companions. These are the people who we gather and worship with. This is the great cloud of witnesses that we know by name. We may know others, too, So this but is we then know these by name. The
0: movement from Ecclesia as all of creation, then humanity in, the, correct. in, in, in communion with the other. correct. And now this community of saints.
1: Now this is the communi- community of saints. So in, in my part of the Christian ocean, we we remember particular saints every day Mm. and it's interesting when you start doing that and following that. It's very interesting Uh, because every day or every few days, there are people there that are not Christian. Right. How could there not be? Because Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Rebecca are all there as is Adam and Eve. And, um, So, this is also Ecclesia. This is, it's a a third layer of Ecclesia, but it's the ones that I am gathering with in a kind of intentional way. It is the great and holy tradition. But it's huge. Yeah. But it's not separate from Scripture. These are deeply bound to each other. They're not distinct. They're deeply bound to each other. And then, of course, we come to the Christian community mm-hmm. itself. But, of course, Jesus Christ was a Jew, so you can't get away from from it, right. you know. And And the apostles, and then we have Paul coming along and making nice with Gentiles, and the church ends up, you know much of it losing its sense and feel for its Jewish mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Christian community s- shares the treasure of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. We do that with Pentecostals, we do that with Baptists, we do that with Catholics, we do that with, with, uh, with all people who are Christians. Uh, it was a little tough with the United Church, here some years ago, because uh, when Bill Phipps was moderator, he did make the argument that everybody was the image of God except Jesus Christ. So that was a little tough. <laughs> this was when Bill Phipps sort of, in his interview, wanted to, he wanted to say that we got to be open to Muslims and Jews. And that meant for him, we've got to back Reject. away... From the notion of the divinity of Jesus Christ, but my point to him was, why didn't you read your theology more carefully? Because the real issue isn't the real issue is the is is the fullness of right. of the human being in right. Jesus Christ, so in any case, we can 't expect a theologian from that particular tradition anyway, so you right. shouldn't get too concerned about it. but my point is that that's shared, and that 's beautiful that we share that, and we should always keep that at the center of our our understanding. And then we come to particular manifestations of the church. Of that tradition. Like the great Latin tradition of the church Mm -hmm. and the great Eastern tradition of the church. And of course, there's always political battles. There's always institutional willy-waving in all of that stuff. But these are all tied into the tap roots of of the tradition. So... And, o- and only after that do we come to something much smaller than that. Like which a denomination is or something. A denomina- well, in, in, the, in the West, we get right, denominations. Yeah. Because of the Reformation, you have a number of denominations coming to exist. Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism do not understand themselves as <laughs> denominations. They understand themselves as simply the tradition. And denominations are, that which is denominated, uh, mm. comes out of, out of the Reformation period. And often Catholics and Orthodox people have thought, thought of denominations as much less. And uh, I think that's, in, in, in many ways, that is also very tragic. And then we finally come to our parish or our particular fellowship or our particular church, and one of the things that is a, tr- is a treasure for me is to realize that when you, when you actually pray in a regular way with a group of people, yeah. that that group of people become a bit of a Rorschach for you. Mm-hmm. They really, are, you know, they become your liturgical family. This is the group of people the intimate group of people they're not the only ones but they're the intimate group of people in the presence of whom i am going to worship god or be carried by their worship when i don't have it in me to mm. do it and in the presence of them i'm going to do i'm going to seek to work out my salvation and I do it in the presence of others because I am a being in communion. I can't do it by myself. I can't even understand myself by myself. The only way we understand ourselves is in relationship to other people because they illuminate. They, 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 they call forth our passions. And by calling forth our passions, our sins our idealizations, our utopian dreams, Mm -hmm. our fears, our disappointments, by calling them forth, we have some chance of saying, ah, let me place this before the throne of God's Mm -hmm. grace. Let me seek healing of this. Let this too pass from me. So, Ecclesia in that sense, I think, uh, I think I would say this uh, comfortably Ecclesia, the gathering that we can see, that we can have a, a feel for or a taste of, is something that only exists in communion. Only exists in communion. That's why so many churches have no ecclesia. Mm. That's why so many of us as Christians on any given day are not in Ecclesia. We're not in the gathering. We're not in communion. That's not a problem. As we come back to the Magna Carta.
0: For all have sinned.
1: All have sinned. Of course. Turn around. Turn around. Come back. So... The spiritual disciplines, then, of the Ecclesia, because I think the Ecclesia has spiritual disciplines, that is, there are things that we do together in order to nurture each other, in order to nurture the growth in holiness. Does it, know, in English, does it, it's nice. Holiness is wholeness. How do I become an undivided creature? How do I become mm-hmm. whole? How do I beca- how, how does my, ne- my normal disposition, how is it for communion instead of for... Alienation, yes. or for whatever my ideals are. You talked about how you were raised with with this heightened sense of morality. Well, this these moral ideals are um, are illusions. There, it's not that they aren't valuable for children and what have you, but anything that is an ideal needs to be healed by God. <laughs> Because an ideal is not life. And God is the God of life, not the God of ideals.
0: That communion and the spiritual disciplines that to some sense would cultivate an awareness of that communion, um, where so often in the religious life, in my experience, I, again, can only point to some of the things that we took up did the opposite of cultivating the awareness of that communion. It was, uh, in a sense, again to say, well, we are, we are this, and, and nobody else is. Or and uh, I wondered. We also talked about, and you brought this up in a number of the conversations. The word charism, particular charism of this church or this denominational group or this tradition or this, um, for the time and place, the church right now or. We could say doesn't. I guess the particularity doesn't matter. Particularity doesn't matter here. When you think of the of the church, the ecclesia, the gathered community, what what's the charism of the church? What would you suggest or offer?
1: My my sense is that. The call to worship, Adonai, the call to regard, to praise, to listen, that that call carries with it, intimate part of it, human frailty. That is, the moment we turn to hear ourselves being addressed by the Eternal, we awaken to our limitations, Mm. our fragility. And at its best, of course, that is a beautiful thing, because it frees us from the notion that we are it. Right. And... And a certain amount of humility makes life larger, makes life a lot larger. Yeah, I like. And so that that kind of humility is is cultivated uh, within us. So, you know, in in the in the tradition, the, the community of worship that I am in, we of course have the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, and there's a rhythm to that, and it's iconic. You gather up the world, hmm. and you gather it up at least three times. You gather it up initially. This is all prayer, of course, and it's a kind of dance. You gather up the world, and then you, you hold it there, and that includes yourself, but you're not the center of it. You're gathering up the world, because liturgical prayer is not personal. It's not personal mm-hmm. prayer. Liturgical okay. prayer is... Um, it's like an orchestra. And whatever your personal piccolo has to say, it can say it, but it says it within that context. So you have a huge ballast to, to both help you realize what it is that's troubling you personally, but you wouldn't normally get very carried away with it because you've got this huge, mm. you've got the great cloud of witnesses. You see, we do not pray alone. We don't even pray with our community. We pray with the great cloud of witnesses. Mm-hmm. They're all there in worship. And um, that's why it's iconic as, as well. So my, my sense is that if we use this as an example, what, what I think is at the center of it is... Um, an extraordinary song, the song of the human heart, which makes it possible for us to hear, maybe, sometimes, a little bit, hear... hear the one that provides the music for all that. And... Um, So for me, uh, worship is not something I create, not something I make. It's something I am called into to hear. Mm-hmm. In a way, in a way, it's a little bit like being a musician. you know, if you're playing the violin. And you've got Bach sitting in front of you, the partitas and fugues. And you're a violinist. You know, the whole point of the practice of, the, of learning to play, the way you discipline yourself for that, the whole point of that is to, to hopefully come someday, not going to happen quickly, but come someday to have the music play you. <sighs> Wow, and my sense is that's what worship is meant to be. We are we. It's a discipline, in order to, someday or some moment or in some relationships, we actually are addressed in communion by the surprise okay. that greets us from creation, yes, and from the stranger,
0: and and you're caught up, caught up, and I I just had this, as you're saying that. That we, are, that we join this ongoing song of adoration. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So then what do we do with all the, yeah. at least from my perspective, what, what, what is the manifestation of all the different churches? Right. I would hope only, I mean, if there's one thing that I could do, of course, I, I can't do half a thing, so <laughs> there's no danger in this, but the one thing I wish I could do or make a little contribution to is to restore the Psalms to all of the churches. Uh, because the Psalms are the cry of the human heart. Mm-hmm. And they express the whole of the human experience. And, and that's really, you know, they were the prayer book of Jesus. You would think it'd be good enough <laughs> for most of us, at least in part, <laughs> for, for our, our worship. So I would, I would love to restore the Psalms yeah. as part of a daily diet. You can do other things too, but to have that at least as part of the ballast of your ship. So my understanding, my sense is that you know I've tried to come to terms with this terrible notion of of uh, ecclesiastical selfishness and pride that yeah. exists. Roman Catholics got a lot of it. Orthodox got oodles of it. Uh, but all kinds of other other denominations do too. Oh yeah, and we've <laughs> talked about that. So my sense of it, though, is that each of these. Where is the ecclesia then? Well, it obviously is not the Orthodox Church. No. It may be there, right? It may be there, and I, uh, it is there sometimes yeah. when I'm there.
0: I think I saw it at the Baptist Church once.
1: <laughs> I know, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah, like the, yeah. right? Or at a Mennonite church, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or or on the street, or on the street. It's in it's in the it's in the whole of the cosmos. It's in all of those places where there is communion where love abounds. Hmm. It's in all of those places. So, so that then says to me, what do I do with my Pentecostal and Brethren and United Church and Anabaptist friends? Well, I take a little leaf out of, out of the Catholic world, which is the Catholic world has the Mass, everybody's part of that, but the Catholic world also has various kinds of orders. Uh, Sisters of Providence, Oblates, Jesuits, all of this. So if you want to be a contemplative or if you want to be an activist of some sort... Go to this order. uh, Hmm. But you're still in the church. So my sense is we are all in the ecclesia because we're all in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And these particular manifestations are particular charisms. They're particular gifts of chrism, oil, to anoint particular dimensions yeah. of human human life and so we should be careful about how we think about them and I, this is a lesson for yeah. myself sure. <laughs> i should be careful how i think about these things and i shouldn't presume about them i would only hope that with all of that and with all those particular gifts that there would also be a capacity to cultivate adoration hmm. And the reason for that is, what is adoration? What does it mean to adore? Well, it's, it's the gold of communion. And the beauty of that is that it speaks to what is more profound in our nature as human beings than anything else. That's you see, Mr. Maslow had it upside down. His pyramid yeah. is the wrong way around. The most fundamental thing that human beings have, you spoke to me about this with your son a little bit over lunch, is the enormous, most profound thing that w- human beings need is to adore, to reach out to that which is beyond our knowing. Amen. Mircea Iliade, the great historian of religions, always talked about homo adorans. We are creatures of adoration. And that the degree to which we forget that. Yeah. That's what happened in Genesis 3. It forgot adoration. But God didn't forget it because he came walking in the cool of the evening and he adored Adam and Eve. (laughs) Where are you? Where are you? Mm -hmm. God worships us.
0: Oh, thank you for this time Mm -hmm. and opening this conversation. And I think like any thing that you know it feels really meaningful uh it it feels like you you know we we've started but that's enough too you know I I want to keep having conversation um but on this ending this note of adoration and the particular charisms the the way that we relate to those other parts of the church or those other expressions is something that at this particular point in history I think uh in the history of the church in the West and the church that Allison and I are familiar with, the Protestant church and denominationalism. And this uh, call to adoration, reminder of this charism is something that will be helpful <laughs> at this time um, when so much on the ground uh, feels like an assault or when we're faced with the perceived expectations of other people yeah. with what it means to succeed or fail because yeah. this calls us beyond that. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. And we'll keep having conversation. Thanks, Alison, as
1: well. Yeah. Lovely to see you.
0: Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Alison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Minow. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.